Well, I hope you're getting ready for Christmas. And uh, as been mentioned, we've got some uh, great Christmas program coming up. So next Sunday at the five o'clock service and the seven o'clock service, there's going to be repeat concert, Christmas concerts. And um, the concert's going to be very different to what we've normally done. Uh, we're going to have uh, traditional gospel music. We're going to have a. Uh, oh, we're going to have the Rum Bear Dance Company are going to be with us, so they're going to be dancing. We've got um, what was it? Oh, a swing band as well, and also a choral voice quartet. Those are some of the things. So it's going to be a mixture of many different musical varieties to celebrate Christmas. So you choose, you come to the five, or you come to the seven, and then the Sunday after that, we have our Christmas carol service by candlelight. Well, health and safety glow sticks, but and that's one of the highlights. That's my, I've got to admit, that's my favourite. And that, again, will be either five or seven. Then we have Christmas Eve communion, Christmas Day, um, and uh, Dave Reedy, David Reedy, um, many of you know him from the past, a great musician, singer, and minister. He's going to be with us the Sunday after Christmas, the whole day. So it's all there in your Revival Times, uh, page 10. So that means that this is the last teaching service, I suppose, of, of this year. Ah, oh, three people are happy. Oh, 20 people are happy. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it is a bit pantomime isn't it? But the exciting thing is, the new series, just to let you know, the new series that will be taking place after January, we're going to have a special guest for that January. Our own music pastor, David Wellington, is going to be teaching on worship and praise. And it's going to be more than teaching. I think he's going to bring... Model, model it. We're going to be doing some of it as well. So we're going to kick off the 5 p.m. teaching service next uh, January with a whole month of learning and expressing ourselves in worship, which I think is a wonderful way to pick up to start January. It was our senior minister's idea, and I think that's very exciting. What I would like you to do then is to turn to Matthew chapter 2. I want to look at the prophecies that were fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. You know, this is a teaching service, and so when it comes to doing Christmas truths, you sort of think to yourself, well, how can I bring something that's a little bit more teaching, a little bit more in-depth than perhaps we might do if um, we are sort of speaking to a broader crowd at a Christmas concert or a carol service or a family on Christmas Day and bring you something that maybe you wouldn't get perhaps at one of our other... Christmas services. So I thought that to spend some time looking at the prophecies of Matthew chapter 2 and seeing them in context in the Old Testament might actually be very helpful. Now, Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 are establishing who Jesus is. So in chapter 1, if you just flick back, you can see that most of chapter 1 is the genealogy. And that genealogy is there to establish the credentials of Jesus. So it goes right back to Abraham and through the line of David. These are the credentials of a king. 
So straight away, Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, this is the gospel, especially for the Jews. Mark's gospel is really written with the Gentiles in mind. But Matthew is, is a very Jewish gospel focusing on bringing the good news to Jews. So Abraham, the book of genealogy, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Luke will go right back to Adam, but uh, Matthew is talking about the fact that Jesus is the true heir and descendant of Abraham and David. In other words, he's saying this is a kingly line. This is a messianic line. But then at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 1, having established his credentials as the Jewish Messiah and King, he then establishes his credentials as being born of a virgin. We have the story of the Holy Spirit speaking to Joseph and saying in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, again, the establishing of Jesus's genealogy as being a kingly Messiah. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And uh, that's Isaiah chapter 7, 14. So the, that's the first prophecy that we see. We're going to see the other prophecies in chapter 2. But there's the first prophecy straight after the genealogy. So what has happened is Matthew is establishing his line. He is a king. And then he is establishing the fact that he had no earthly father. No earthly father. Um, Joseph was his adopted father. That he had an earthly mother, but not an earthly father. It was the Holy Spirit that provided the seed that went into the egg of Mary to produce Jesus. That which is... Um, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So that's amazing already what we've seen in chapter one. And, and he's gone back and said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Some people say that that phrase from Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, behold the virgin. They say, oh, it's not a virgin. It's a young woman. But all young women in Israel were virgins in those days. You know, the good old days when uh, you had to be married before you had sex. And not only that, if you do a proper study of, of the word in the Hebrew for virgin, you'll find that there's other words for women as well. And the word used there is always used about young women that are virgins. The, there's another word for those women that have um, been married or have known a man that they use. And so I just wanted to put that, put that down there. And then we get into chapter 2. And it's interesting because... These tell the events in chapter 2 of Jesus' birth, but the whole of the story of chapter 2 is linked to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's not just a story of Jesus' birth, but when we go through chapter 2, it's all about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And also, Old Testament prophecy is not just thrown in there as illustration. So note that chapter 2 is Matthew is saying, I've given you his genealogy. He's a king. I've explained he has no earthly father. It was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
And in chapter 2, I'm going to demonstrate that his whole story was prophesied in the Old Testament and is a fulfillment of that. So he's still establishing the credentials of who this Jesus is at the beginning of his gospel. And he is saying, I'll show you who he is. I'll establish his credentials, genealogy, Holy Spirit, miraculous conception. And then thirdly, his credentials by prophecy fulfilled. And if you're skimming through chapter two, you will see that these prophecies all have to do with locations. We have the prophecy regarding Bethlehem in verse 6. We have the prophecy regarding Egypt in verse 15. We have the prophecy regarding a place called Rama in verse 18. And then we have a prophecy regarding Nazareth in verse 23. So we have four prophecies to establish who Jesus is. And actually, a lot more than just establishing that he's fulfilling prophecy, what we will see is we're going to go back to these prophecies and see them in context. Because when you take these prophecies back into the context of when they were first prophesied, they tell us even more about who Jesus was and what he is doing. It's interesting that uh, people that sometimes just skim read the New Testament, often they'll criticize sometimes the prophecies used in the gospel. They'll say things like, out of Egypt I called my son. How could Matthew use that as a fulfillment of prophecy? That's got nothing to do with Jesus, has it? And they say, oh, Matthew and Luke especially, they just seem to be picking anything out of the Old Testament. Oh, that'll do. And making it fit whatever they want to fit it Two. That's often a criticism of the prophecies in the Gospels, that they are taking out proof texts and just forcing them to mean something they're not. But when we take a brief look today at the context, we'll find that that is not the case at all. And actually, remember, many of us, we only know these verses as they're quoted in Matthew. I mean, do you know the context of the Bethlehem prophecy? Do you know the context of the Egypt prophecy? Do you, know, do you know the context and the story behind them in the Old Testament? Or like most of us, do you only know these because they've been read at nine carols and nine, nine uh, readings or, or seven if, you, if you're Katie because you want get, to get, get on with it. But do you just know them as, prophesy, as prophecies here? Well, the Jewish people, when they would hear these prophecies, a voice was heard in Ramah, they would immediately, in their minds, because they knew most of the Old Testament by heart, they would immediately say, we know exactly where that verse comes from. We know what was going on in the pro when the prophet was prophesying, and we can see that this is actually a rich teaching point for us to understand the fulfillment of these prophecies in, in the New Testament. So they're all locations. So we're going to begin with the first one. Now, I won't read everything here, but we, we can start, I suppose. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, this, in this story, we, we come across wise men from the east, the Greek word magi. Now, interesting, these wise men from the east, they were coming from Persia. That's where they were originating, Persia. And it's interesting because, of course, in the Old Testament time, it was in Persia, it was in Babylon, that the children of Israel were taken for 70 years into exile. And during that time that they were there, many of the Babylonian wise men, magis, and scholars would have come into contact with Jewish writings and Jewish prophecies. I mean, after all, one of the most, one of some of the best leaders in the Babylonian empire were people like Daniel, weren't they? You think Daniel just sat there not sharing the scriptures with people? No, of course, in his high position as almost being like king, many of them would be looking and reading and studying and finding out about the Jewish people. And the whole of the Middle East was actually waiting prophetically for a great monarch to rule the world. These wise men didn't come out of anywhere. They knew, and the whole of the Middle East knew in various ways, that there was an expectation for a king to arise that would rule the whole of the known world. And they knew enough, and God led them and gave them enough knowledge, that they saw a star, and God had in their culture put something there that would lead them to follow this star, and the star brought them only so far, it brought them to Herod the king. And when they came to Herod, they said, well, you know, this is far as our understanding goes. We understand there's going to be a great king that will rule the known world. We understood in our own understanding that this would be a star and it's fulfilled that which has been revealed to us, but we don't know where. Um, the star's pretty general. The star seems to be hanging over the whole of Israel. So where do we go from here? And then isn't it interesting that Herod then went to the chief priests, the scribes, and they said to him, where is the Christ going to be born? All of this, of course, those that were reading Matthew when he wrote this, and Matthew was a very early gospel. Some people think that Matthew was the earliest gospel to be written. Some people think it was Mark. And I think you could argue for both. So this was a very early, uh, very early gospel. And people could check this up. They could say, did this really happen? Yes, it did. Go and speak to the scribes and the Pharisees. Some of them are still alive. Some of them have got saved during the time of the book of Acts. They could check this out. And it shows you that there was a firm understanding amongst Jewish people, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem and Judah. This wasn't just an opinion, this was the opinion. And there we get the, um, the quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's fascinating because Jesus, as we know, was born in Bethlehem, but he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's quite interesting because in his ministry career, many people didn't realize that he came from Bethlehem. He wasn't known as Jesus of Bethlehem. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, and he would have a Nazarene accent. I often say that it would be a bit like today, um, Jesus perhaps being born in the south and then raised in somewhere like Barnsley or Huddersfield or Doncaster in the north. And we would be saying, well, of course, you have to be born in the south to be somebody. And then Jesus would be come, come down and be going, hello, everybody, I'm Jesus of, Jesus of Barnsley. How are you? Hey, I'm from the north. And we'd be saying, well, he, he was, he's obviously not from the south. You hear what I'm saying? And Jesus, would, they, Jesus had a Galilean accent. He had a Nazarene accent. There were local accents. And so when people heard him speak, they were saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We know his accent. He's a northerner. We know where he comes from. Can anything good come out of him? And they didn't know. They'd have to dig a little bit deeper that actually, though he was brought up in Nazareth, having been to Egypt for a while, he was born in Bethlehem. But we can go a little bit deeper because... We've said we're going to look at the context of these prophecies. So if we go to the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, in the Old Testament. Quite near the end of the, of the Old Testament, Micah. What are we talking about when we're talking about Micah? Well, well, let's skip through very briefly. If we look at Micah chapter 2, verse 1, we see that Micah is judging immoral leaders of Israel. Their leadership is corrupt and immoral. Uh, Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness. And, and by the way, as we read this, this is not just talking about the people that Michael, Micah knew, this is a, an exact description of the leaders of Jesus' time when he was born. So often in prophecy in the Old Testament, it will be addressing something that's current, but it will also be addressing something in the future that will be very similar. That's, that's classic Old Testament prophecy. So as you read the description of the leaders of Israel at this time, it is also allowing them, when they read that prophecy in Micah from Bethlehem, they'll be going back and saying, ah, yes, yes, we know. Micah is talking about what type of leaders? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. And they oppress man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising a disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk arrogantly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they will take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. Now, what this is, 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 is this was about the people at the time of Micah, but this was a direct description of Herod. 
Herod was a horrendous ruler and those that were with him. And they were dispossessing people of their rights. And they, and they were enslaving people. And within 70 years, well before that, but even within 70 years, the whole of Jerusalem and the whole of Israel would be destroyed by the Romans. And so we're getting this picture of corrupt leaders. If we move to Micah chapter 3, verse 1, still getting a context in which we can put a setting in which we can put the jewel of this prophecy we've read in Luke. Chapter 3 and verse 1, talking about how they shouldn't behave, sorry, about how they should behave justly. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from my people and flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Again, this criticism and judgment of evil leaders. Verse 3, verse 9, sorry, um, Micah 3, verse 9. Hear this you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bride, its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field. Jerusalem become heaps of a ruin. That would happen in AD 70, within the lifetime of many of the people that were born or, or just about to be born in that generation to Jesus' generation. And then we move, and we could go spend the whole time here, but, but then we move to Micah 5, verse 2. And in that background, we have this. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, I can never say that word at Christmas, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until time when she was in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So when Matthew talked about the fulfillment of this passage, immediately the Jewish people would say, we know what Micah's all about. And they would say, and, we've, we, and if we go back now to... Um, Matthew chapter 2, you can see through Matthew chapter 2 what type of leaders they are. I mean, verse 7, straight after this, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, you see Herod. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Really? And then later on we will see that he will slaughter all the children between one and two years old in Bethlehem in order to prevent this Messiah being born. So when 
we see this as a prophecy, and of course Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It has a rich background that speaks about the type of people that Jesus was coming in and the corrupt leadership and the corrupt King Herod and the corrupt shepherds of Israel compared to the amazing saviour that was coming into the world. The second um, uh, prophecy comes to about the fact that Jesus went to Egypt and came out of Egypt. So we can, we can read on from verse 9. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that comes from Hosea chapter 11, 1. So let's go to the prophet Hosea of the Old Testament. Hosea. Now, Hosea is quite a well-known prophet because the book of Hosea, really, God is speaking to Israel, not just through the mouth of Hosea, but through the life of Hosea. And if you remember the story, Hosea that the life story of Hosea is that God says to him, you are going to marry a woman called Goma. And Goma is going to be unfaithful to you just as Israel has been unfaithful to me. And what you will experience, Hosea, is what I am experiencing. And people will be able to look at your life and what you go through and how you handle it and it will be a parable, parable to them about what I feel about my nation, Israel. And so what happens is Gomer is persistently unfaithful uh, to Hosea. She even has illegitimate children and Hosea names an illegitimate child, not my child, not my child. And she even gets embroiled in prostitution. And in the end, God says to Hosea, I want you to buy her back. And so he takes um, 15 pieces of silver, a large amount of barley, and he redeems her. He buys her back from her life of prostitution, his unfaithful wife, and brings her back and treats her and loves her and forgives her as his own wife. And this is this is really the life story 
of Hosea. And God is speaking to Israel and saying the same thing, that Israel has, has fallen away from the contract or the marriage covenant between them and God. And so when we get to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, we have another picture that God loved Israel, the nation of Israel, from a child. And it's really talking about the time that God brought Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. When Israel was a child, I loved him. He's speaking about the nation. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What is he speaking about? God is saying that when they were 400 years in Egypt, in captivity, remember, and God sent 10 plagues, let my people go. He's saying, Israel was a child and I loved Israel as a child, even though 400 years in Egypt and the time came when I redeemed and I brought my child, the nation of Israel under Moses, out of Egypt in order to bring them into the promised land. There's a, there's a lovely, I'm just going to skip to it and read, a lovely picture of how God speaks about the early relationship he had with the nation of Israel and how he, he, he brought them as, uh, as a child out of, is, out of Egypt in Ezekiel chapter 16, 4. A very powerful scripture, Ezekiel 16, 4. Speaking about Israel. And as for your birth, Israel, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you. I mean, they were in Egypt, slavery. No, I pitied you to do, pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. Remember all those boys that were killed or were meant to be killed by Pharaoh? He wanted, he wanted to kill all the Jewish boys that were born and many of the midwives refused to do it. But So this is extremely poignant when you think of the history. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out onto the open field for you were aboard by the Egyptians on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant out of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. So this picture of this child. And so this, this is very powerful because what is this? Well, this is what we call a prophetic type. A prophetic type. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you have what we call types of the New Testament or types of Christ. So the lamb that was slain was a type uh, at sacrifice in the Old Testament, was a type or a picture of the Christ to come. You can look at the uh, priestly garments of the high priest and everything that the high priest wears is a picture or a type of Christ to come. You can look at the tabernacle, can't you? And the temple and the tabernacle. And everything you see in the Old Testament physical tab tabernacle is a type or a picture of heaven. 
In the book of Hebrews, it says all these things were types. They were pictures. They were scaled models of what eternal realities were. And so when we see that Jesus was taken to Egypt and then brought out of Egypt, it's very powerful because it's like, a, it's like an exodus experience. Back in Matthew chapter 2. It's Israel's exodus is a type of Jesus to come. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so God's loving, tender care for, e for Israel as his son. The idea that Israel was in Egypt and God's relationship with Israel in Egypt was, this is my child. This is my son. This, this is a young child, a childlike nation that I'm coming to redeem. They've been in Israel. Now I'm going to take them out and take them into the promised land. And now we have his own dear son, the only unique son of God who has gone into Egypt and now is being brought out of Egypt. All these things bring, a, bring far more depth to establishing the importance of Jesus. We've had the genealogy. We've had the virgin birth with prophecy. We've had the Bethlehem ruler and shepherd Messiah prophecy. Now we've got out of Egypt, I have called my son and this picture and identification of God's Israel being his child, but now his own dear son going through a similar, similar change in location, going into Egypt and then being brought back to the promised land. Then if we move on, we're going to come to the next place, because all these are locations, remember, in chapter 2, Ramah. So let's uh, go on from verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this verse comes from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. And what is Jeremiah prophesying? Jeremiah is prophesying the captivity of Israel. He is saying, you are going into captivity, Assyrian, Babylonian captivity. Remember Daniel, when he read the scriptures and he was in captivity, read that, this, that Jeremiah actually prophesied that it would last 70 years. So he is prophesying about the captivity of Israel and then later the southern part, Judah, by the Assyrians. And if you want to know where Ramah is, there are two Ramahs. And the Ramah that Jeremiah was talking about is six miles north 
of Jerusalem. It's a high place, it's an elevated place. In fact, Rama means high place. And this place, Rama, became an assembly point. When the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they killed many, many people. And so there was much weeping for that. But also there was weeping because they took the people out to this assembly point, this high assembly point called Rama, and it was there that they first experienced their captivity, taken from Jerusalem, pulled out of Jerusalem, and then assembled on the high place of Rama, and there they were enslaved and prepared to be taken into captivity. And so a voice heard in Rama, Rachel is weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted for her children no more. So this is a picture of captivity, a picture of assembling, captivating in order to take into captivity. But there was also another place that was known as Rama, a different Rama, and this was one mile north from Bethlehem. And uh, you can still go to this place, Rama, one mile north of Bethlehem. And this, again, is a high place. It's an, it's a, uh, an elevated place, because that's what Rama means. Now, this is the place where tour, tour guides will tell you, this is the place of Rachel's tomb. Rachel's tomb. And if you remember Rachel and um, Jacob's love for Rachel... And she had two children, Ephraim, Ephraim that was northern Israel, and Benjamin that was part of, uh, of, of, of southern Israel. And so here is her burial place, just north of Bethlehem. And so this is very powerful because you've got the first Rama that is a picture of captivity and, of course, speaks of the captivity of darkness. You know, the people... In darkness, that's a picture of captivity. The Bible uses darkness as a picture of chains and captivity. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor and to help to bring people out of cap captivity, to give sight to the blind and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, as Bethlehem was suffering this massacre of male children, so close to this place where Rachel was, it's a very powerful scripture fulfillment that we see here in Matthew chapter 2. And then finally, we have the last prophet in verse 23, and we can come to that. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the interesting thing about this is that you could say, okay, can you give me the scripture, please, of where in the Old Testament it talks about 
he would be called a Nazarene. It doesn't. It doesn't. There's no place in Scripture where this prophecy can be found. But that doesn't mean it's not legitimate. But what it means is that there must have been known prophecy, known prophecy handed down that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, a Nazarene, or from Nazareth. And so that's interesting, isn't it? And remember, those that Matthew were writing to would know all these things. Just like the Jewish people, just like the leaders knew it was Bethlehem. It's common knowledge. So they knew that the Messiah would spend time in Nazarene. Although, having said that, you wonder how many people knew this prophecy. Because I've already said to you that they're expecting him to be identified by Bethlehem. But there must have been something, must have, somebody must have prophesied it for Matthew to say he's not going to make it up, is it? Is he? And so what we see when we, when we come to a close now uh, is in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Christmas story is a lot deeper than we think and would have a, a lot more powerful impact on the minds of Jewish people when they read it. These aren't just prophecies plucked out of nothing with no meaning or background. Matthew isn't just saying, let me find what I can take and force a scripture to fit in with what's going on and I'll just pick anything, I don't really care. Uh, it's not that at all. But each one of these that we've looked at was known by the people at the time, had authority, even the one that's not from the Old Testament, had authority to the people at the time, it was known prophecy, and had a rich background that actually spoke about the Messiah himself. So within two chapters, we have seen that Jesus is of the line of David, of the line of Abraham. He is of the Messianic kingly line. We have seen that he had no human father. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. We have seen that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was going to be born in corrupt times with corrupt leaders, but he was going to be the pure leader that was going to come. We have seen that Egypt was a very important place because that's where Israel as a nation was a child. And so God's unique son was also a child where Egypt was. And God brought the infant nation of Israel out of Egypt. And God brought the infant, unique Son of God out of Egypt. We've seen the terrible historical destruction of children. And we've seen that this is a, a picture of darkness and captivity. That when people were brought out of Jerusalem and held captive and sorted out, and ready for taking into captivity in the Rama outside Jerusalem. We have that whole weeping and wailing. The temple's been destroyed. Israel has fallen and is now going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. And then we have the picture of Rama just a mile outside Bethlehem where Rachel herself in her tomb lay and what was happening in earshot, if you like, of, of hers, and then this final prophecy about Nazareth. And then in chapter 3, we have quite a number of years, many years take place between chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
Chapter 3 says, in the day of, days of John the Baptist came preaching. So these first two chapters in Matthew are extremely important. Matthew believes he's done it. Matthew, Luke tells us a little bit more. But Matthew says, that's, that's enough. That's all I need to tell you. You want to know who this boy is? You want to know what he was born as? What he was born to be? You want to know if the Old Testament speaks about him? You want to know the prophecies that are fulfilled in him? Well, I have established now the credentials of who Jesus is in two chapters. And now he can begin with John the Baptist's ministry. So I hope that just brings a little bit more light on scriptures that will be read and preached from and prophecies that will be read in our candle carolite, carol candlelight things in two weeks' time, that you will say, wait a second, I know that these scriptures were not just plucked out of anywhere, but they have a richness that speaks into what... And because, because these are rich, it isn't just two chapters. It's far more than that. The Jews would be thinking, as I've said, about these different prophets, what they faced... And so therefore, Matthew chapter 2 paints a big, 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 big picture of Jesus from the Old Testament. These scriptures put back in context and understanding the prophets and the prophet's messenger gives a big, rich background and introduction to who Jesus is. So much so, as I've said, that Matthew can then move on right to the adulthood time of speaking about John the Baptist. Tonight at our revival service, remember next week is our, our two repeat uh, Christmas concerts and then the week after in the evening, five o'clock and seven o'clock that will be, five and seven, and the weekend after will be the ca uh, carol concert. But tonight, as we minister in the Holy Spirit, I'll be asking the uh, ministry team to be seeking God for words of knowledge and words of ministry. But I will also be speaking on straining gnats and swallowing camels. This is what the Holy Spirit put on my heart. When Jesus was speaking in, um, in Matthew chapter 23, you get the seven woes where he was speaking against the Pharisees. And one of them, he says, you know, you, you strain gnats, but you swallow camels. And there's, a good, there's an interesting history to that. And I'm not, I'm not going to be going woe to you. I mean, it's not a woe sermon. I'm not going to be hammering you all and calling you all Pharisees. But what I will be doing this evening, as well as releasing the ministry, is just speaking out how to, know, how, how to, how to keep with the bigger picture. Because sometimes we focus so much on small things that don't really matter. Sometimes the very small things do matter. But sometimes the things we focus our attention on, we get so het up about, we get offended about, we argue about, we, we talk about, they're gnats. And the huge, big things that are on God's heart, they're like camels and we're swallowing them without even realising. So that's where we're going tonight. God bless you all.